Awesome. Okay, take your Bibles, open up, and we're going to start in the book of Hebrews. Before we get started, I want to tell you where we're going. This morning we're starting a new series, and it's called Responsibility. Now, most of us know that word. Most of us grew up with that word, right? I'm looking at Kirk, and I'm thinking of his dad, and he knows that word very fine. But we're not, on this series, not talking about uh, responsibility uh, in, the, in the way that we know it. Uh, what we're talking about is responsibility. All right. And we're going to take a twist on this and how the two are hooked together. God talks to us. We respond. And when we respond, he gives us the ability what, to do what he's asked us to do. That's called grace. And we're going to walk through that and look at stewardship from a worship angle. And what is worship and how can we worship as a group of people? And how do we enter into worship in a lot of different platforms, not just one, which is stereotypically come Sunday morning and sing. All right. And what you find out is if you miss all the other platforms, the Sunday platform doesn't work as well either. And so what we want to do is engage on a, a day by day, life by life level of where we can be responsible with ability together and that our worship would grow so that when we come on Sunday and we actually sing to the Lord together, that grows as well. So join me in prayer and we'll, we'll launch in this. Father, um, as we come this morning and we look at this, I, I, I'm seeking your heart for laying out uh, how we can grow as a group of people in worship. Not in uh, pulling up our bootstraps, not in harder effort, although that may require that in certain places of what you've asked us. Nothing wrong with that. But when that's by itself and it's lacking worship, it, it isn't any good. And so, Lord, what we're looking for is help us become a more worshiping people, more awe-inspired people of who you are. And may it be reflected in our actions and in our words. And we pray this in your name. Amen. All right. So the, the, the theme of the series is why we do what we do. Have you ever sat down and asked yourself why you do what you do? Right. Sometimes when you're parents, right, you get in the middle. Why are we doing this? Right. Do you ever hauling kids off to basketball or soccer? Right. And it's the fourth trip and you forgot something at home and you got to run back and get socks. And why are we doing this again? Right. And sometimes that can be that way with church. Why? Why are we doing what we're doing? We can get so caught up. We forget why we're doing so this morning is kind of what I'd call a cornerstone piece. It's kind of the anchor piece for the whole series. And, and so I want to start in Hebrews 12, and I want to work through this verse with you. It says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Uh, one of the things I've learned that you can do that's fun is take verses backwards. Right? A lot of times we get so used to reading them going through, we don't notice them. But if you stop and go through it backwards, uh, you gain some insight. So let's break it down a little bit and start with the phrase, for our God is a consuming fire. We just came through Easter. right? We had, we had uh, the night of worship on Palm Sunday. We had Monday, Thursday. We had a Good Friday celebration. We had the shawl on the cross, the shawl on the the new one on the cross Easter Sunday morning. And the whole thought there is that Christ has overcome the power of the grave, that he is resurrected from the dead, that he is alive now and forevermore. And so when you think about this, this picture, our God is a consuming fire. What picture comes up in your mind? Right. What, what do you think of uh, when that comes up? I want to take you to Daniel. We use this uh, 
during the Easter week. And it, it's in Daniel chapter 7. And it says this. So Daniel has this vision. And in this vision, kind of the screen opens up. And Daniel says, thrones were placed. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and the wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. Right? Doesn't it have that feel to it? Just that kind of thought? It's an awe-inspiring scene. If you try to put numbers to it, a hundred million people are standing in front of this throne of fire. Just imagine that, you know. Just kind of do a Steven Spielberg in your mind, right? What that would look like. And it says the court sits and then the books are open. I will bet you won't be checking your Facebook status at that moment. Right? That's probably not what's going to be going on. In other words, this is a captivating thing. Now, one more piece we have to add to this going on. If you go in Hebrews, it says he makes his ministers angels, uh, uh, angels winds and his ministers flames of fire. So along with that picture of the hundred million standing in front of the throne, you've got angels whirling around as flames of fire. So you've got quite a spectacular uh, scenery uh, going on at this moment. I mean, this is Indiana Jones, Stargate, Matrix, X-Men, and Avengers all rolled into one. Right? Just kind of deal. And um, it's amazing. And, uh, you know, just think how amazing and awesome that site will be. Just think how amazing and awesome that site is right now. That that will be rolled into place. Now, what is that? What do we do with that? If you look a little earlier in Hebrews, um, in chapter 12, it says, it talks about when this happened here on earth. And we are familiar with this uh, when Moses took the Israelites out of the promised land and they came into the desert and God gave them the Ten Commandments. We call it Mount Sinai. And it says, God's presence came on the mountain. It says, For you have not come, studying the Hebrews, you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet. That's the shofar that we were talking about last week. And the voice of whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Right? Now you can read a lot of stuff into that, but here's the point. When that heavenly glory, when we think of that throne picture, when that heavenly glory touched our earth in a small way, it produced fear and terror in the people who saw it. They were like undone. Like it, it was not ha-ha-he-he time at that point, right? They were absolutely terrified and begged that not even a, another word. Now, I don't know what that's like, Okay. Um, probably the strongest picture I have of that is my dad's voice when he was mad. And you recognize this would not be a good time to bring up your opinion. All right? Uh, That's the closest picture I can get to it. But I can only imagine what was it like to hear a voice that the voice was scarier than what you saw on the mountain to the point where you begged that you'd never hear that voice again. 
And the word is beg. So it's like overwhelming. Please, please stop. Moses, who knew God and was a friend of God, literally, this is a knee-knocking time. He says, I am full of fear and trembling. Just, whoa. Even Moses himself was blown away by it. So if Moses is taken back, I'm thinking, how would I respond? I'm thinking, oh my goodness. This is, this is a, a, a big deal. Why I'm trying to emphasize that this morning is because I think one of the great dangers that exists today uh, with us, uh, particularly uh, in the American church, um, and for, for those of us who've come to know, uh, you know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, but even for those who don't, um, is that we're no longer in awe of Him. God's no longer a big deal. He's not really somebody we need to pay attention to or be afraid of. The idea that God deserves respect has kind of fallen out of favor. And the question could be why. I think it goes along two lines. First line that I hear often is, I haven't seen Him, so why should I be impressed? If He wants to show up and do something, fine, but... Um, who is God that I should notice him? Sounds a lot like Pharaoh, right? That's an indication of a kind of a hard heart. And the second question parallels, it goes along with a little bit, is, okay, if he's there and he's so awesome, what has he done for me lately? If God wants to do something for me lately, uh, fine, I'll jump on the, on the bandwagon. But if not, I see no reason why I should be impressed with him. I'm only impressed with people who can help me. And what you can see at that point is that worship has gotten turned around. We want God to worship us instead of we us worshiping God. We, we get it flipped and moved uh, in the wrong, wrong direction. So then here's the logical conclusion. When we lose our awe of Him, it's easy to sin. Right? Because there's not really any consequences anyways. Uh, what, does, what difference does it make if I sin or not? Uh, one of the amazing things about TV, if you watch TV and you can pick out a whole bunch of shows and they'll come to your mind. And, uh, but one of the fascinating things about TV, um, Hollywood in general, as they present their worldview to us and, and understand when you're watching TV, you're watching a worldview, uh, is that there are no consequences. Or if there are consequences, you are God and you are clever and you are super and you can figure your way out of them. There's always a way out. Um, there's not such a thing as consequences where you're stuck. And so the thinking goes, live your life any way you wish, for it is all right, and it is always right. And there are no consequences. But you know, in our hearts we know better, right? And in, in our life experience we know better. When, when we sin, there have been horrific consequences, some of us are still today living with consequences of choices we made 30 years ago. Now, yes, God applies His grace. Yes, God puts salve there. Yes, God heals. Yes, God extends mercy. And yes, we're still rolling along and we have grown and matured. But we're still living with some of those consequences, right? And when we look at our children, we say, don't do that. And they go, what do you know about that? Well, actually, quite a lot. And... One day you'll look back and realize I was trying to warn you about something that you wish you had listened to uh, when you were younger. And so there's this whole issue of um, consequences. 
and the issue of sinning. And, and there is the warning. In, in Hebrews chapter 10, there's a, another warning. It says in verse 26, For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. And then it has this phrase. Listen to this phrase and see if this connects with that earlier picture. A fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. So in other words, think of being one of that hundred million and you're standing in front of that throne and suddenly fire breaks out from the throne and you know that you have continued to deliberately sin. That's not a good place to be. Suddenly, there are implications that are, are pretty radical. It says, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, let, let me see if I can make that sense for you. So let's say we just tell God, I don't need to listen to you. you. You put the law, the Ten Commandments in motion, and those Ten Commandments were set up to show me where I violate them so that I would come to faith in your son. But I, I throw that aside. So here's what that means. It says anyone who's thrown that aside and, and hasn't paid attention to the law and therefore doesn't know the need for the Savior, when uh, judgment comes, it says that anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So here's what that would look like. So you're in heaven before that throne, right? The great judgment seat of Christ. And you've thrown that aside. So what the... Uh, prosecutor is going to do at that point and say, is there anybody who would come up and testify of how Steve Mitchells has sinned in his life? Well, pick me. It's easier than picking you. All right. Make you nervous sitting up. I'll pick me. All right. Is there anybody who has an offense against Steve Mitchells? Is there anybody Steve Mitchells has, has sinned against? Is there anybody who he's not reconciled with? And in that course of that drama, if two or three people get up and testify against me, I'm done. Through my whole lifetime, if two or three people have, uh, if I've sinned against them, and I, they find, find fault with me, if they stand up in front of the prosecutor and, and witness against me in court, I'm done. Suddenly the need of a Savior becomes quite important. Right? Because I got news for you. There's probably more than two or three that would stand up if that question was asked of me. What about you? And here's the thing. Those are the ones I know about. What about the ones you don't know about? Right? You ever find out later somebody had an offense with you and you never knew it? So it says if... We have this expectation and the fury of the fire that will consume the adversaries. If anyone sets aside the law of Moses, dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses, how much worse punishment do you think, here comes the all part, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who's trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and, and here's a, a scary, scary phrase, has outraged the Spirit of grace. It's one thing if you've got people mad at you. It's another thing if you've got the Holy Spirit mad at you. And it doesn't just say mad. It says outraged. We, scripture warns us, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't quench the Holy Spirit. 
But Hebrews here tells us don't outrage the Holy Spirit. Don't continually buck Him when He's trying to say, hey, here's how you could cooperate. Here's, here's how you could draw closer. Hey, here's how you could worship. And we keep doing this or we do this. It says it creates a spirit of outrage. Yeah, indignation. How could you throw my coaching out the window that way? And, and Hebrews is warning us, don't do that. It says, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And that is as true today as it was 2,000 years ago. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God if you're on the wrong side of the coin. And so the culmination of the thought is also found, go back to Hebrews 12, verse 25. It says, See there that you do not refuse him who is speaking. In other words, if God's talking to you or talking to me, we should listen. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? And so there's this picture built of this accountability and being responsible for when God has talked to us. So then the question is, okay, if you flip that coin, now let's go on the other side of the coin. What's the opposite of refusing? What's the opposite of being stubborn? What's the opposite of being stiff-necked? What's the opposite of um, I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it? Well, the opposite of that is worship. How do I know that? Go back to our original verse. Read it again. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God, what? Acceptable worship. Acceptable worship. With reverence and awe. Two key words. For our God is a consuming fire. Since we know God is a consuming fire. Since we know that scene that we've talked about isn't imaginary. It's not made up. Steve Mitchells didn't make that up and had pizza with jalapenos on it and came up with that imagery, right? That is not, that's not something Steve Mitchells came up with. Since we know that picture to be true, since we know our God is a flaming fire, then we should worship Him with reverence and awe. The appropriate response when we see God in this way is to worship. We can either fight and resist and, you know, when you think about it, after the picture we painted, how far is that going to get you? Or we can worship. Right? We can respond with reverence and awe, i.e. we give credit and honor where credit and honor are due. There's an old saying that way is you give honor on the level that it's, it's appropriate or that it's due. Right? Not everything accords equal honor. And so therefore, when it comes to God, we should give Him the first, the best. We'll talk more about that later in the series. But God should get the highest form of our attention and the highest form of our respect the highest form of our heart allegiance because He is a flaming fire. It is acknowledgement of His greatness and glory. It is why we do what we do. In other words, why did you come this morning? You came to worship. Now, was your heart 100% perfect on that? Probably not. But as you come, isn't it amazing as we gather together, as we get to other people, you're, you're put back down the funnel and re-aimed at the kingdom, re-aimed at the Lord, re-aimed at worshiping again, getting my heart right. And so there's a lot of tweaking that goes on on a Sunday. You may be off three degrees, you may be off 15 degrees, you may be off 30 degrees, you may be off 180. 
And that's what we call repentance, right? You swing 180, came back around, what do you do? Line back up with the kingdom, line back up with worship that God has first place in our lives. It's why we do what we do. We do what we do to bring God honor and worship. All right? And in the American church, that sometimes slips around where I come to church because God can meet my needs. Now, God does meet his needs. He's a good dad. But have any of you sat there and wanted him to meet your needs and he hasn't done it? And then he's come and said, well, you should worship me. Well, when you meet my needs, I'll worship you. You ever had that tug of war with God? Kind of that push me, pull you kind of place? We want to be a people that don't do that to God. We want to be a, a group of people that hold God in awe, that we respect him deeply. That his words are held as important and dear to us, and they do not fall to the ground. The idea of the falling to the ground is we aren't paying attention, they just hit the dirt, and God's words had no impact. That our love response to him is worship. Why do we worship? Well, let's go back to that verse. Think about it again. Look at the first part of the verse. It says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It does not say that you cannot be shaken. It says the kingdom He has given you cannot be shaken. And when you've lived a shaky life, when you've lived uh, a a life that's been uh, battered about and knocked about by your sin and other people's sin, the idea of a kingdom that cannot be shaken is good news. Something has been given to you that cannot be taken away. Right? That's, that's, That's great news. A kingdom that cannot be shaken. In Ephesians chapter 1, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Otherwise, just listen. Ephesians chapter 1, 11, verses 11 through 14, it says, In Him, in Jesus, in our resurrected Savior, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. That's talking about somebody who's got a plan and put in place a long time ago. So that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him, in Jesus, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. In other words, there is a seal put on our hearts, seal put on your hearts, by the Holy Spirit that says, Mine. Kingdom. You want to talk about kosher? You're approved. I know that one. My seal's on him. And it says, because of that guarantee, we were sealed with that promise of the Holy Spirit for an inheritance, and we're waiting for that inheritance until we actually take possession of it. So we are... uh, I often see guys, uh, we're talking, and I go, yo, royal dudes. And uh, they go, what? I said, well, you're a son of Jesus, aren't you? Yeah. Well, then you're a royal dude. You're going to inherit the kingdom. You're kings and princesses and queens. And Wow. We don't think of ourselves that way. Right? But we're sealed by Him, by the Holy Spirit. How does a person receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken? Well, remember that court scene where the witnesses come against you? Instead of... That instead of being in that position where witnesses come against you, you have the witness. The witness is the Lord Jesus Christ. The witness comes against you 
And you admit your sins, you admit your distance, you admit your rebellion, and you ask Him to come into your life by faith. And when you do, He becomes a witness for you, not against you. Because when God looks at you, He sees His Son. Just as if, justification, just as if He saw Jesus. You no longer have to carry the account because the account's been clean. It's been washed clean. The witnesses can't get you because the witness owns you. You know, sometimes I think it's easy to forget why we do what we do. The same can be said for individuals as well as groups. Uh, it, it can be easy for a church to forget why do we do what we do. And it can just become routine, right? It can become religious practice. It can become um, what I'm comfortable with or what I'm, I'm used to. Instead of, oh, I am coming... Uh, as a response of living a life, a week of worship with the Lord, I'm coming to respond with others who've done that and to worship Him. That we can forget that that's what we're supposed to be doing. Let me give you two examples that um, I thought of. First one is this one. You know that symbol well, right? YMCA, right? We, could, we should have done that song this morning, right? Why? Right? Backwards C, that doesn't work. Okay, here we go. But... I uh, thought of this. Uh, the YMCA was founded by George Williams, a draper, uh, who was typical of the young men who were drawn to the cities. And this was the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. All right, And uh, men flocked to cities because that was where the work was. And the problem with the cities is that the best form of entertainment were the taverns or the brothels. Okay, Not, not a good play out all right, in terms of money or lives. And so... George Williams saw this, and in 1844, so this is a long time ago, right? 1844, think about that. He founded the first YMC in London with the purpose of improving the spiritual condition of young men engaged in drapery, embroidery, and other trades. That was the original mission statement. Listen to that again. He founded the YMC for improving the spiritual condition of young men engaged in drapery, embroidery, or other trades. In other words, he saw a whole lot of guys like him and said, I'm going to start something that starts to speak to their spiritual needs and started to minister. And by 1851, so 1844, 1851, all right, so seven years. By 1851, there were YMCs in the United Kingdom, in Australia, Belgium, Canada, France, Germany, Netherlands, Switzerland, and the United States in just seven years. The YMC was very influential uh, during the 1870s to the 1930s. That was the, the major heyday of it. During which times they most successfully promoted, listen to this, evangelical Christianity in weekday and Sunday services while promoting good sportsmanship in athletic contests and gyms where basketball and volleyball were invented and swimming pools. I, I grew up going to a Y swimming pool. That's where I learned to swim. Right? Parents would put us on a bus. We'd go into Green Bay, go to the Y, and learn to swim. My friend Joe Nimmer ran his hand through the ringer while we were doing swimsuits. Very memorable times. Later in this period, and then continuing through the 20th century, now, listen, the YMC had become interdenominational and more concerned with promoting morality and good citizenship than the distinctive interpretation of Christianity. Today, the YMC is more focused on inspiring youth and their families to exercise and to be healthy. Right. So if you talk about 
do I like the YMCA? I like them fine. I think they're a fantastic institution. But if you talk about how they started, the YMCA has forgotten why they do what they do. They have corporate amnesia and have moved away from it and no longer do what they were originally chartered to do. Another one. There is an article uh, just this week. You probably saw it. New Jersey school was sued for the phrase uh, under God in the pledge. I pledge allegiance to the flag. United States of America and to the Republic for which it stands. One nation under God. Right? With liberty and justice for all. The school was sued. Uh, they have a cute picture of gals with their hands over their hearts praying. Um, but it says, A family is suing a New Jersey school district contending that the phrase under God in the Pledge of Allegiance discriminates against atheistic children. The lawsuit against the Matawan Aberdeen Regional School District was filed in state court last month and was announced Monday by the American Humanist Association. The group says the phrase, added in 1954, marginalizes atheists and humanistic kids as something less than ideal patriots. The anonymous plaintiffs say those two words under God violate the state constitution. The school district lawyer, David Rubin, says the district is merely following a state law that requires schools to have a daily recitation of the pledge. He says the individual students don't have to participate. The humanist group is awaiting a ruling from a court on a similar case in Massachusetts. And there are cases uh, in other places as well across the country. The phrase under God came in 1954, but it came from, in the beginning, uh, when our money was made and the phrase stamped on it was what? In God we trust. Right? Because why? In the early days, America understood and acknowledged that they had been exceedingly blessed and privileged by the divine hand of God. Go read any of the founding fathers. You can twist it as much as you want. They had incredible respect for that. Just read some of David Barton's stuff. You'll see but we as a country have forgotten. We think we've made this. We think it's been our brains, our bronze, our skill, our cleverness. We're more wonderful than any other people. And we have made the United States of America. And we don't need God anymore. Now I want to ask you, as you've watched the last 30, 40 years and watched us uh, throw things out the window. You know, we threw the Ten Commandments out the window, Right? 1963, Madeline Murray O'Hara. And we threw prayer out the window. Have our high schools improved in that time? Has our country improved at that time? Right now we are sitting at something like $13.5 billion trillion in debt as a country. We are right now the largest debtor nation in the world and reality as we know it could change in a blink of an eye if that all comes crashing down because we're not course correcting it. Have we forgotten how we were originally chartered? That many of the people that came over came over so they could worship God? But we use the religious freedom. That's not why they came. They came to America, go back to the Puritans, go back to the Pilgrims, go back to how the colonies are set up. Go back and read the original charters for Harvard, Princeton, and Yale. They were seminaries designed so that America would have the right moral fiber and the right Christian heritage. We've lost, we've forgotten our charter. 
So in this series, we're going to relook at this whole idea of worship and what comes out of worship and how do we re-put God uh, first. The question again, why do we do what we do? Why, why do you do what you do? What This talks about inner heart motive. What, what drives you? What's your purpose? What's your anchor place? I want to suggest in this series you think of a couple things that will make sense. The idea here, one, is that God speaks. God does speak. He has spoken. He is still speaking. And He speaks to us as people. And when God speaks, we respond. Right? And the idea there is that it is obedient, not knowledge. Uh, one of the dangers of the American church is that we become very knowledge-based. It's about what we know. It's not about what we obey. Oh yeah, I know that. You ever had somebody say that? Yeah, but you're not doing it. Yeah, I know, but I know that. I, I got it down. And we become knowledge-based as if that is okay. Is there anything wrong with right knowledge? No, it's fantastic. It's great stuff. But if you just go off of that, it doesn't get you anywhere. You have to operate off of what you know. So when God speaks, we respond. So I want, to th- I want you to think about in the next couple of weeks, how might God speak to you and how might you respond? He will not talk to all of us on the same item. Newsflash. Right? If you're sitting there and all of a sudden... Right? You ever been sitting when you're like the only person in the audience... And you wish I wouldn't look at you and like you're getting nervous and your palms are sweating like, (laughs) you know, like how come God isn't talking to everybody else kind of feeling? Okay, that when that happens, God is talking to you about a specific issue that is unique to you, probably not even has to do with the person next to you. That's one way. But he can also speak to us corporately about how we need to respond. Northview Community Church corporately. So God speaks, we respond. Obedience versus knowledge. And then secondly, we obey, God equips. There's an old saying, God equips the called. He doesn't call the equipped. God equips the called. He doesn't call the equipped. Nine times out of ten, you will be sitting there and God will call you to something and the very famous words you will say to Him is, I can't do that. God said to Moses, go free my people. I can't do that, God. I'm a man of stuttering lips. I'm a stuttering tongue. I can't talk. By the way, later in the, you know, in the five books, Moses seems to talk pretty well. Right? You ever notice that? So a lot of that smoke screen, let's just call it for what it is. right? But God calls, and if He calls you, He will equip you. He will give you grace for what you're supposed to do. I know that to be true. That's how I pastor. Right? I can't do that. Yes, you can. No, I can't. Yes, I can. No, you don't understand. Yes, I do. Okay. You're bad, you know. You ever say that to God? He seems to know what He's about to do. So He knows what you can do. He knows what He's purposed in you. So therefore, God speaks, we respond. And then, we obey, God equips and I want you to be thinking about that as we go the next couple of weeks. I do not know what God is going to bring out of this series or how He will speak to us individually or collectively. But I do know that it will be applying faith and belief to these two points. What will He ask us to do? For that, we should prepare our hearts with worship and we should pray. So let's pray. Father, as we come before You this morning, some startling pictures, some great pictures 
that draw us back to you as the, the prime, prime relationship. First place. Why we come this morning is because we come to worship. And it's easy to forget that, Lord. It can be a lot of different reasons and we can get out of whack, but we can lose you in the picture. And Lord, we don't want to lose you. We don't want to forget our charter. We don't want to forget that you've come to ask us to make disciples of the nations and that we are to baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and that you've saved us and as we've been saved, we're to pass it on to others. Lord, a lot of this will get perked out over the next several weeks. May you be talking and having conversations with us that are consistent and appropriate with what the conversation has been. Give us eyes, give us ears to hear from you and we ask this in your name. Amen.